Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Linda Hopache and Kayla Price for New Books in Anthropology. Today we're talking to Pauline Turner-Strong, our former professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and we'll be talking about her new book, American Indians and the American Imaginary, Cultural Representation Across the Centuries. This book considers the power of representations of Native Americans in American public culture. Hi, Polly. Hi. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Linda. How are you doing? I wonder if you could start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I um, went to Colorado College, where I got a BA in philosophy. While I was there, I took um, a number of courses in Southwest Studies, and they got me interested in Native Americans. So I became a research assistant two years after college with Alfonso Ortiz, who was an anthropologist from the Cava Pueblo of San Juan Pueblo, in just north of Santa Fe in New Mexico. And with him, I got to work on research about stereotypes of Native Americans, as well as research that had to do with work he was doing as an activist. Um, that was a really wonderful opportunity. And so after that, I decided to go to graduate school in anthropology. I went to the University of Chicago and studied there with Ray Fogelson and George Stocking and Michael Silverstein and a number of others. Um, and continued to look at stereotypes of Native Americans. Um, that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And it's really what I've been working on since graduate school, it's such a large topic that um, it has provided many, many avenues for study. Definitely. And what made you decide to compile these chapters together into this book? I've been working on the chapters that come together in this book for about 20 years. And they've been published in a variety of venues. They've been edited collections. They've been in professional journals. But I felt that pulling them together would allow readers to see continuities and changes in the way that Native Americans have been represented in American culture and how they have represented themselves. Um, And I also wanted to reach a broader audience than my academic publications have. So I tried to write the book in a way that it would be accessible to non-scholars, but also be of significance to specialists in the field. Great. So moving into the book, in chapter one, you employ what you call an ethnography of representational practices. Can you tell us a little bit about what this entails? Yes. Um, The idea of representational practices is really central to my book. And in that, I 
I mean, I'm looking at representations as something that, uh, as, as um, ideas and symbols that and images that are produced and that are circulated and that are consumed. Um, this is an idea that I got especially from the literary scholar Stephen Greenblatt. Um, in talking about ethnography of representational practices, I am talking about using the various techniques that anthropologists use to study these representational practices. Um, in some cases, I'm using historical methodologies. Um, in others, I'm doing media analysis. In others, I'm relying on observations or on autoethnography. And um, the autoethnography involves um, analyzing my own experience. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about the structure of the book and how you decided to organize it? Yes. I um, wanted to put the book in an order that would allow people to pick and choose um, among the chapters. So the chapters are independent of each other. Um, although there's an introduction to each of the parts. And I've organized the book into four, in the five parts. There's an, an introduction, the, the ethnography of representational practices that we talked about, which is a theoretical introduction to the book. It's establishing the terms that I use in my analysis. Um, and then... Um, I moved to part two, which is representing history and identity. And there I look at um, representations that go over um, a long um, period of time and have to do with how Americans and before that Europeans represented their own history through, through reflecting upon their relations with Native Americans or their differences from Native Americans. Um, so I start looking at the concept of tribe and how um, non-Native peoples have thought about what tribal societies are um, and distinguish, distinguish them from nations, something that Native peoples have contested um, quite successfully. And then I move to a um, discussion of the meaning of um, the year 1492, the way that um, that has been seen as first a discovery, and then in more recent years um, as an encounter or as a conquest, depending on who is thinking about 1492. And of course, a lot of this comes from the year 1992, the Quinn Centenary. Um, when there was a lot of thinking about the meaning of 1492 and the 500 years that came, came after that. Um, and then that part ends with a chapter on the symbol of Indian blood. So what does it mean to talk about Indian blood? Um, how does that essentialize Native identity? Um, and how has that been used by Native peoples also um, in thinking about their identity, especially when they're dealing with federal rules and regulations? Mm -hmm. 
And it seems like this part is uh, really focused on thinking about how Native Americans are symbolic of and then excluded from what you call the American imaginary. Um, yes, that is true. And the notion of the American imaginary is a second organizing principle for the book. So the first one we talked about representational practices. Um, the American imaginary simply means the ways that uh, Americans imagine themselves, imagine who we are, um, and how we do that through processes of inclusion and exclusion. And Native peoples have been both included as symbols of the United States or of the Americas more broadly and excluded from the ways that um, modern society is understood or, or um, civilization um, is understood. So those processes of inclusion and exclusion are really central to my interest. You also discussed the importance of looking at public discourses, for example, the changing tropes of celebrating discovery to encounter and exchange and the oppositional conquest, resistance and survival in Chapter 3. How do these parallel or contrary discourses intersect or do they? So in 1992, there was a lot of self-consciousness about the discourses that are used to talk about 1492 and um, the concepts of the new world and the old world and more generally um, the, the, the historical processes that have occurred since 1492, since Columbus's voyage. Um, and because of that self-consciousness, it was a great time to investigate how Americans of various sorts um, were thinking about 500 years of history. And um, what I call the hegemonic discourse, the dominant discourse, is, of course, the discourse of discovery, Columbus discovering America. That is what is generally taught in schools. Um, it is what Columbus Day parades celebrate. Um, but in 1992, a new paradigm emerged. Um, and it came from museums, it came from scholars, it's the paradigm of encounter. And that is a new way of thinking about 1492 in which both Europeans and Native peoples have agency, have cultures, and 1492 is seen as the meeting of two old worlds. And that allows us to look at the historical processes that have come from that that encounter. A lot of curricula were developed um, using that discourse, and um, several museum exhibits also were developed to um, bring that idea of the encounter, the Colombian encounter, to the American public. Um, Alfred Cross, we had written a book on the Colombian encounter, and so many of these um, curricula and Museum um, exhibits were trying to popularize that scholarly idea. Um, in response to that, some Native peoples uh, offered another discourse, and that's the discourse of conquest, resistance, and survival. And that is a more 
political way of thinking about what's happened since 1492. It is tied in with um, contemporary indigenous movements for um, various kinds of rights. And it criticizes both the, dis the discovery paradigm and the encounter paradigm for not acknowledging the harm that has been done to Native peoples over 500 years. So those are three main ways of thinking about history since 1492. And they are combined in various ways, um, in various contexts. But, um, but I think they can be analyzed as three separate strands of, of historical thought. And did you find that they ever speak to each other in different ways? They speak directly to each other in that the encounter paradigm was developed as a response to the discovery paradigm. Um, the discovery paradigm was criticized quite rightly for um, presenting indigenous people as, as savages without culture, um, um, not um, not viewing the um, negative consequences of Columbus's voyage for indigenous people um, and being ethnocentric. That was a direct speaking back to the discovery paradigm. And um, the, encounter the encounter paradigm was intended to replace the discovery paradigm. It hasn't really done that. Um, I think it is encountered in schools. Um, it was encountered by people who read Newsweek magazine, for instance, um, National Geographic, or who went to um, um, a number of very prominent museum exhibits in Washington, D.C. But it didn't really replace discourses of discovery. Um, and in fact, there, there have been controversies um, um, between, for instance, Italian-Americans celebrating Columbus Day um, and wanting to celebrate something that the encounter paradigm really doesn't offer up to celebrate, but more to analyze. It's more of an analytic paradigm. And then the paradigm of conquest, resistance, survival um, is directly, again, contesting those two other paradigms and saying that they are apolitical, they are not connecting very well the past to the present, they um, don't help us think about Native struggles today. Um, and so there is a, there's really a struggle for meaning about what 1492 represents. It is connected with contemporary identities and projects. And the final chapter in that section considers Indian blood as a trope. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, Indian blood is a very common phrase. It is a way that, um, that Native Americans were forced into particular, into particular categories um, and understood as racially distinct from 
people who have other kinds of blood, and most specifically white blood. Um, it's a it's a trope or a um, a set a symbolic construction that has an ambivalent kind of meaning uh, because it both sets Native peoples apart because of this blood they have, this substance they are imagined to have. Um, but it also um, is often viewed as um, sort of representing a connection to the land. So Indian blood is something that um, can both be used to exclude and to include. Um, but in either cases, even when it's viewed in a romantic way, um, it, it presents Indian identity as a kind of thing. It, it essentializes it, as we say, theoretically. It looks at people um, as having some kind of immutable substance that makes them native rather than looking at the culture and the practices that are part of um, part of indigenous life. So this, uh, this chapter looks at the life of this concept, Indian blood, which has lasted for a long time and is still very important for many native people um, because tribal constitutions and the federal government both use concepts of Indian blood and tribally specific blood um, but Cherokee blood or Iroquois blood or Lakota blood as ways of categorizing indigenous people. Great. Moving on to the, um, to the next part of your book, um, entitled Captivity, Adoption, and Cultural Transformation, um, you get into captivity narrative. Can you tell us a little bit about these and how they've changed over time? Yes. So this um, this part is also historical um, in um, the beginning, and then moves to more contemporary concerns. Um, captivity narratives are what I wrote my first book about, and in that book, I which is called "Captive Selves, Captivating Others." I look at how, um, from Puritan times, colonial American identity was imagined through the eyes of a captive taken by Indians. Um, there's a very famous captivity narrative, Mary Rawlinson. Um, there are others that followed. Um, the most um, famous captivity narrative is actually that of John Smith. Um, um, who told, told the story of how he was rescued from execution by Pocahontas. These captivity narratives are ways that, um, that colonial Americans thought about their relationship to what they saw as the wilderness, so the American environment, and the inhabitants of the wilderness, whom they often called savages. And these stories have been told and retold. They've moved into film. Um, Dances of Wolves is a captivity narrative. Um, and they are central to, to the way that, that Americans have thought about what it means to 
um, to become American, to be um, to be in an alien environment, to be surrounded by um, alien people. This is how it, um, the experience is often presented from the point of view of the captive, but to also often view indigenous life in positive terms. So many of the captivity narratives tell a very um, negative story, a very frightening story, um, but they also often point out ways that, that indigenous cultures were attracted to that. Um, many of the female captives talk about the freedom of indigenous life. They talk about the way they... The, the status they had as women. Um, and some of the male um, captives also talk about freedom and closeness to nature. And so the captivity narrative is a kind of trope about being removed from one's native culture. Um, and this is often seen as either Europe or colonial culture, and then transformed through the experience of being captive, captive in America. And so that process of transformation is, um, is again, a metaphor or trope for the transformation that all Americans undergo, all immigrant Americans undergo when they come to this country. And I think that's key to the continuing um, relevance of captivity narratives for audiences. That's really interesting. And um, thinking about that uh, concept of uh, sort of captivity narratives, um, you move on to thinking about the issue of playing Indian here. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that chapter? Sure. So um, the fourth part of the of the book is is about playing Indian. And that, again, is a concept is very familiar to Americans, maybe even more familiar than the concept of Indian blood. Um, many American children grow up playing Indian in some kind of way. Perhaps they play cowboys and Indians. Perhaps they play with Indian figurines. In one of the chapters, I talk about um, playing with Pocahontas figurines and um, with an Indian in the covered computer game doing that with my children who were young enough to enjoy those kinds of experiences when I was first working on this material. Um, there's other contexts in which Americans play Indian as well. Many summer camps are organized around playing Indian. And um, the cabins might be named after Native American tribes. Um, there may be competitions between groups that have tribal names. Um, various ways of imaginatively becoming Indians then in the wilderness. This practice of playing Indian has very long roots. Um, it goes back to um, to perhaps the 18th century, if uh, the 19th century, if not before. We know of um, adults, including the anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan, who um, had a club 
in which they um, they organized the club and the roles within the club through through Iroquois notions. Um, when American youth organizations were organized back in the um, early years of the 20th century, again, this notion of flying Indians was central to the to the activities of these groups. Um, in this part, I don't talk only about the history of this practice of flying Indian, but this is a place where I do autoethnography and write about my own experience as a campfire girl. Um, campfire girls in the 1960s when I was growing up um, still were very much oriented around the notion of um, taking on an Indian name, um, creating an Indian ceremonial gown, um, um, making a beading, a beaded headband, um, sewing beads onto the ceremonial gown that represent achievements. Um, singing around a ceremonial campfire. Those are all really vivid memories for me. Um, and so I reflect upon what that, that means to imaginatively identify with Native Americans. Um, but in a way that really represents, um, you know, American culture much more than any, um, any um, Native American culture that actually exists. Can you say something about why it's important to look at popular culture when thinking about representation the way you do? So I think over history, over time, the ways that Native peoples have been represented, the, the media in which they have been represented have changed. Um, if we think about uh, the very earliest years, it was woodcuts and travel narratives. Um, then we have captivity narratives. We have paintings and sculptures. We have fiction. We have film. Now we have video games. Um, we have children's games, um, children's culture. These are all part of, of popular culture, a part of the ways that um, people express who they are what they want to be. Um, and so I think it's very important at looking at the relations between these popular representations and more scholarly representations and then self-representations of Native peoples. Um, there's, there's a lot of differences among these different kinds of representations, but there's some continuities as well. Some Native peoples worked with for instance, the founders of youth organizations um, and helped them um, develop the symbols that youth um, used in, um, in creating Indian names and rituals, pseudo-Indian names and rituals. Um, some scholars worked with these groups. So the scholarly, the popular, and self-representations um, all share a common field of representation, we might say. And what is special about um, playing Indian and, and that these performances still persist while other sorts of performances of otherness are, are automatically recognized as um, 
not legitimate, whereas these, these still tend to persist. What's the difference there? Yeah, this is something that really interests me, and I think looking at the controversy over sports mascots really helps us see, see this issue very clearly. Um, we're at a time when it's not seen legitimate to use um, most ethnic names um, or attributes um, in a um, in a derogatory or um, way or in a stereotypical way um, that still occurs for other ethnic groups, but not not um, with the force that it occurs um, with representations of native peoples. So we still have. Um, sports organizations that are called the Indians, the Braves, the Redskins. And Redskin is is um, can only be seen as a derogatory term. Um, people may say Indians and Braves when they use those terms. They are actually honoring Native peoples. I have my doubts about that claim. Uh, um, but Redskins is a racist term. Why do we continue to tolerate that? Well, I think it's because, and this doesn't justify it by any means, but I think it's because Americans have been used to thinking um, that they have the right to portray Native peoples, um, to perform Indians. If you play Indian as a child, you are socialized to think that that is an appropriate thing to do, especially if that playing Indian occurs in an educational context. If you do it in school when you are reenacting Thanksgiving, for instance, right? Or if you do it at summer camp and adults are telling you that this is what you should be doing. Um, um, many schools formerly had American Indian mascots and logos. Um, schools have, by and large, seen that they um, need to get rid of those. They need to retire those mascots. It was a long process through which that happened, but um, and it took lawsuits saying that it is not. Um, it, it, it does not provide an equal education to Indian children if they are in an environment in which Indians are being used as mascots, that is, being used as objects, being objectified and being parodied. Um, but we still, in the, in the professional world of sports, have sports mascots. I think it's a powerful commentary on the way that Americans feel a kind of ownership over um, representations of indigenousness. Um, and the way that Indians tend to be consigned to the past. If, if Indians are in the past, then the thinking goes, it doesn't really matter how they are represented. Why would they, why would they object? Exactly. And you move on to your uh, 
fifth chapter, Indigenous Imaginaries, and you talk about uh, other ways of um, thinking about how this representational process can, can emerge, first with the contemporary trends in ethnographic research, um, and then you discuss self-representation. So I wonder if you could take us through that chapter. That, the or, fifth part of the book. The fifth part of the book. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so in that part of the book, I turn to the way that indigenous people are increasingly imagining themselves in a public context. Of course, indigenous people have always imagined themselves in ways that are really in tension with or constant or um, contradictory to the imaginations of others, the representations of others. But today, indigenous self-representations have become much more a part of um, the dominant public culture. And that's true in scholarship as well as in the public context. So in one chapter um, of that part, chapter 11, I look at how indigenous scholars um, and indigenous tribal leaders have um, claimed more and more authority over scholarly representations. Um, how ethnographic scholarship is more and more carried on as a form of partnership, as a collaboration, um, rather than um, the way it was carried on in the early years of anthropology with primarily white ethnographers um, writing in an authoritative, in an authoritative, authoritative voice about Native peoples. Um, so I'm very interested in and supportive in, of the movement towards collaborative ethnographies as well as um, um, the trend of more and more indigenous people becoming ethnographers themselves. Uh, in the final chapter, I look briefly at a um, very successful form of self-representation, which is the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. And that's, that's the most prominent uh, forum in which Native peoples are representing themselves in the U.S. Um, and a, a real contrast to the ethnographic museum um, that most um, Americans are familiar with from the past. Native peoples are speaking with their own voices, they're telling their own stories, um, they are presenting the variety of Native experience. Um, there are controversies about that museum, of course, but it is, um, you know, it's really clear that this is a place where Native self-representation is occurring, and it's occurring in a context where there's many, many visitors to this museum. And so people who don't encounter Native peoples in their everyday lives encounter many representations, but don't encounter um, Native individuals. They have a chance to hear Native peoples talk about their experience. Excellent. Um, you end on a positive outlook for challenging the colonialist representations examined earlier in the book. Are representations of Native Americans likely to change much in our lifetime? 
I think they've been changing really, really dramatically, certainly in my lifetime, they have. Um, now, there's, there's trends that are not forward-looking, I think. Um, you know, the Lone long, long Ranger movie, for instance, comes to mind. Um, the Washington Redskins comes to mind. But I think the general trend is towards um, more and more indigenous self-representation, more power over representation among indigenous peoples themselves. Um, and the whole idea of indigenous, of course, has become a very important representation, a way of conceiving of or imagining the experience of Native peoples as a whole. And the concept of indigenous um, extends globally. So um, in this book, I'm usually um, looking at Native peoples of the U.S., but when, when Native peoples in the U.S. conceive of themselves as indigenous, they're connecting their experience to that of Native peoples in Latin America, the Pacific, and elsewhere. And that brings power with it as well. It brings um, representation at the United Nations. Um, it brings a... It amplifies voices, I believe. Um, so I think there's many, many positive things happening with with indigenous representation. Well, we certainly consider this a very valuable contribution to anthropology, but I'll ask you what or how you would think that that this work contributes to the field in general. Um, I see this as a contribution to anthropology and to American studies. Um, my own training is in American studies as well as in anthropology. And so I've tried to write a book that uses anthropological concepts um, but speaks to, speaks to a broad audience as well as to anthropologists. For, for anthropologists, what I have aimed to do is really take the concept of representation seriously, try to look concretely at representational practices, try to look at it over a long period of time, and engage, and engage in um, reflexive ethnography. Reflexive ethnography is looking at the culture of the ethnographer, and that is something that... Um, I began doing in in the 1970s when it was not a very common thing to do. Um, I felt it was important to look at the dominant culture, and and I thought it was important to use anthropology to try to understand processes of symbolic domination, which is what I think representation is. So I see this as a contribution to that study, the study of symbolic um, domination, but also to long-term processes of representation. And also to seeing how anthropological representation intersects with public representation. Um, 
there are anthropologists who have a role in this book. Um, so it's, it's reflexive in that way as well. For American studies, um, I have tried to contribute um, a book that's grounded in, in anthropological um, ways of looking at culture. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Polly. We're going to end with one final question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, first, let me say I really appreciate your interest in the book. It's such a pleasure to talk about it with you. I am now working on a um, book that takes off from a chapter in this book. There's a chapter in this book called Crafting American Selves that looks at youth organizations. And I am doing research now on um, youth organizations in the 20th century in the U.S. Um, and the way that they have represented ethnicity. So um, starting with the early representations of Native Americans in youth organizations such as the Camp Fire Girls, the Boy Scouts, um, the YMCA, I am looking as well at more contemporary um, movements towards using a more multicultural type of representation. Um, and I'm looking at that as a struggle. It, um, it's not easy for youth organizations or really any organization to change. Um, and so I'm interested in how there have been changes in the way that ethnic groups, especially Native Americans, are represented by youth organizations. That book also takes up the concept of cultural citizenship and looks at how Youth organizations play a really important role in um, shaping youth's idea of what it is to be a citizen um, and also what it is to be a citizen of a particular gender as well as of a particular ethnicity. There's been dramatic changes in youth organizations with respect to gender, um, and that's something I trace in this book as well. Well, well, we certainly look forward to that work, and thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. We uh, really enjoyed talking to you, and um, wish you luck in your future work. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you.